0: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis. And first of all, we have some personal podcast news. We're very excited to announce a brand new show from the makers of The Bunker called Why. Why dives into the big, weird and wonderful questions in science and takes you on an adventure to the edge of knowledge, wherever that might be. It's like The Bunker, except it's about evolution, space travel, psychology, digital technology and a whole lot more. And we think you'll love it. There are free episodes out today with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Visit whypodcast.co.uk to listen. There's also a link in the show notes. Now on to our regular programming and joining me today is the ever-wonderful Alex Andreu. Good morning, Alex. How are you?
1: Morning, Jav. I'm very well. Thank you. Good, good, good.
0: Alex, so the big legislative news, let's get into something meaty straight away, is we have the King's Speech this week, which will be the last one before the next general election. Should we be looking out for anything worthwhile here or just expect sort of naughty stuff aimed at causing the next and most likely Labour
1: government a bit of trouble? I guess a little bit of both. I mean it's striking that the measures that are said to be in the King's Speech, because there has been a little bit of sort of trailing and leaking, etc. And they break down into two categories, things that are really quite inconsequential, they're sort of side projects, and things which are quite long term for a government that may have only a few months left in office. And so It's quite strange. They sort of look at a political horizon that is either too narrow or too wide, if you know what I mean.
0: Yes, it's sort of a party that's kind of on one side, hopeless, so giving up, and then also deluded in thinking that it has more time to do
1: stuff than it does. Yeah, and I guess what those two positions have in common is that it is a party that's given up on governing. So it's either looking for instant sugar rushes, or long-term pie-in-the-sky stuff that it will never get to do and be held accountable for.
0: There's some stuff that's hanging over from the last session. What's that? What's the nuts and bolts there?
1: So briefings are that the renter's bill will survive the changeover, the crossover, but that has been already quite significantly watered down in that it doesn't deal with no-fault evictions, which was Kind of its central point when the bill started, it was to take away landlords' ability to just throw tenants out on no-fault evictions, basically to just put up the rent. And so that has survived, but it has survived having had its teeth pulled out. So then on new things that are
0: coming up, does anything stand out among the new kites that are being flown by the government?
1: We know there will be something there on tobacco products. Even though Labour are supporting it, I think there's quite a lot of opposition from Tory backbenchers who are saying basically it's ridiculous to try and interfere with the free choices of 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. Because remember, this is a bill that will increase the age at which you can buy tobacco products by one year every year which means that, uh, you know, people who are now 17 might be asked for ID in, you know, 30 years' time when they go to a news agent. It does create a slightly ludicrous situation. I understand the the thinking behind the bill. I think it's been done in New Zealand quite successfully. There's a, a new investigatory powers bill. It's a sort of reform bill. That's going to be, I think, quite contentious. Uh, so that's actually quite juicy. What the government want to do is to force technology companies to give it a heads up and get its approval before they do a security update. I mean, it sounds, I guess, okay in theory in that The government should know how encryption works across various apps, you know, for security purposes. But loads of technology companies have pointed out that security updates go out quickly for obvious reasons. And the idea of depending on a a civil servant somewhere on a Saturday evening, giving the tick to something or a minister saying okay to something so that they can do a security update will be a massive problem for them, and Apple are already threatening to just withdraw their products from the market, things like FaceTime and WhatsApp, because they say they would rather not have those products available in the UK than compromise their security. There's also a leasehold reform bill, falls under the same brackets as the renters' bill, in that its biggest sort of trailed provision, which is to end leaseholds in the UK, to end that ludicrous feudal system that's been taken out. Various relatively uncontroversial pensions reforms bills. There's a bill on police being able to seize knives. there's a bill to create a new football regulator, that's also relatively uncontroversial. So it's a smorgasbord of Things which, like I said, are either fairly inconsequential or so long term that this government will never get to enact them.
0: On balance, I mean, as you mentioned, there's this sort of you know smorgasbord of a lot of sort of shallow or delusional measures which are coming through. But on balance, are Tory MPs actually even happy with this? I mean, I've seen Sunak being called delusional by MPs of his own party within reports. You know, on the whole, is he even managing to keep his party happy? Because it seems like he's you know, failing to make the electorate particularly
1: excited. Is anyone pleased? Look, they're, they're just working at it, right? They're trying to create some kind of dividing line that will make them able to fight an election. It's difficult. It's difficult because they've been in power For such a long time, because this attempt to relaunch Sunak as some kind of change candidate has failed miserably, and rightly so. It's difficult because he's not the most sort of enthusiasm generating politician there ever was (laughs) you know there's a lot of stuff working against him but they're kind of plugging away it's kind of pathetic I suspect Tory MPs care about other things much much more and this will just provide an opportunity for them to air different grievances they care about their position in the polls you know on the aggregate poll they are now back to 20 points behind That's the the poll of polls, right? That averages everything, you know, ignores outliers and tells you what the core assumption is. They are 20 points behind on that. There's no sugar coating, that kind of poll deficit. The second thing is that we have another couple of by-elections coming up, possibly, (laughs) and they will be very, very testing. And the third thing, probably the most important thing, is that we have a budget coming up. So when the Chancellor makes his autumn statement, which will be in about 10 days' time, there will be loads of pressure from different wings of the party to do different things, right? The big rump of the bank- back benches want tax cuts. There is some information being fed to the papers today that there may be a bit more headroom than thought because the tax take was slightly higher than thought, basically, because people haven't responded to the increase in interest rates and they've continued to spend. The Treasury has taken in a little bit more money than it anticipated. You know, the idea of... Funnelling that into tax cuts will be very, very popular with Tory backbenches, but quite unpopular with the rest of the country. And so, you know, those are the real focal points. And the King's speech is a bit of theatre that allows for those other grievances to surface.
0: Well, going on to those other grievances about the not particularly enthusiasm generating Prime Minister that we've got. What is going on in Tory psychodrama world at the moment? I mean, Soella Braverman, what's happening there and why is no one reeling her in in any way, shape or form?
1: Okay, so some plan leaked over the weekend, and by leaked I suspect it means, you know, Braverman's team briefed it out, that her plan to deal with homelessness is to take away the tents that homeless people use and to find charities that provide them with tents and sleeping bags. Which, Ugh. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous, it's outrageous, but then again, that's what she's there for. She's there to provide the ridiculous and the outrageous, to absorb outrage, to sort of create this sense that everything is on fire for both her career's benefit. But also, I think we have to start entertaining the idea that rather than her being an imposition and a problem for Sunak, she's there by design, right? Because we have done this with quite a lot of people, haven't we? We have said, oh, you know, the prime minister obviously dislikes that person, but can't remove them because the right of the party will kick up a fuss. There are ways, I think, for number 10 to signal its unhappiness with someone that don't involve sacking them. And I see very little of that.
0: There's also some pretty damning accusations coming out of Nadine Dorsey's book that she's wrote. Should we be expecting more from that this week or any kind of consequences or investigations to to happen?
1: Of course there will be damaging stuff there because the whole point of her book is to damage the government. She loathes Rishi Sunak viscerally because she sees him as the person who um, sort of removed, who defenestrated her beloved Boris Johnson. So the book will be full of that stuff. Should we give it any credence? I don't know. I mean, you are giving Nadine Dori's credence by doing that. That doesn't mean that everything that is in the book is likely to prove, you know, unfounded or false. Absolutely not. You know, she was in that party. She was in those WhatsApp groups. She knows what what went on. You know, she was a senior secretary of state. So everything she says will be heavily coloured and heavily influenced by her personal agenda. But that doesn't necessarily make it false.
0: Finally, on domestic stuff, there's also there's the COVID inquiry still going on this week, what should we be keeping an eye on? And is it going to be as blockbuster as Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane was last week?
1: Well, I mean, the short answer to that is no, just because, you know, they they have a, a power to generate a lot of Interest, but I think it will be very, very interesting. There's a couple of very interesting spads giving evidence. Claire Lombardelli, who advised at the Treasury. There will be a lot of questions about ETA to help out, which can be very consequential because the Chancellor then is the Prime Minister now. Um, There will also be Ben Warner from Number 10. He's been mentioned a lot in testimony so far. On Tuesday and Wednesday, I think, will be the two most interesting days because we get Simon Ridley and Mark Sedwell, both of them very senior civil servants. Mark Sedwill, especially who was the, the top civil servant to the cabinet office at the time, seems to be the focus of a lot of the accusations coming from politicians and political advisors. A lot of them have tried to Pin the lack of coordination and the lack of a cogent response and the lack of a plan basically personally on him. So it will be very, very interesting to see what he has to say on Wednesday. And then by Thursday, which is the last day of this week's slate of witnesses, we get into some junior politicians. Justin Tomlinson, who used to be a, a minister for the disabled, and Priti Patel is giving evidence on Thursday. Um, She used to be Home Secretary, as you might remember.
0: Unfortunately, yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so that will be interesting in its own right. But what is even more interesting is that it indicates that we're now into the politicians, because I think that's how the witness list has divided broadly. In previous modules, so in Module 1, we got basically... The scientists first, the civil servants and spads seconds, and third, the the politicians. And we have seen the same pattern in this second module, scientists first, spads and civil servants seconds. And we now seem to be into the politicians, which means that when the inquiry is back on the 20th of November, because there's a week's break in between, when the inquiry is back, we will start seeing uh, the big box office, witnesses like... Matt Hancock, and Rishi Sunak, and Boris Johnson himself.
0: Alex, moving away from the domestic side of things, what is the latest from the situation in Israel
1: and Gaza? I mean, another uh, night of very heavy bombing. Israel now claims to have basically cut the Gaza Strip in half. Heavy casualties. Some journalists have been allowed in to see the consequences of that uh, bombing of the refugee camp. World opinion is turning quite quickly against Israel, I think, but there seems no end in sight to this. The objective of the Israeli government is quite clearly to sweep through all of Gaza and remove all the assets the tunnels the equipment the the hammers military part of the operation and i can't see i can't see them stopping before they've done that
0: there are un calls for ceasefire they're growing and then beyond that i mean the the united states are calling for a humanitarian pause yes. and that seems to be the other side of things but either way you look at it it seems that most nations are calling for, at the very least, a, a pause to what is happening here. So from what you said there though, does, do either of those courses of action seem seem likely in the short-term future?
1: No, they don't, but, but then again, that's how it is with those things, always until it, it's not. I know that's a, a, a bleak answer, but that's how diplomacy works, you know? It doesn't, and it doesn't, and it doesn't until it does. So the fact that you know Blinken's visit was relatively unsuccessful and Israel seemed to be deaf to the cause of the UN at the moment does not mean that these things should stop. Because, like I said, that's exactly how diplomacy works. It's just... Weeks and months and years of failure until one day of success. And, you know, from the flow of humanitarian aid into Palestine, absolutely a drop in the ocean, but it is happening. From the flow of foreign nationals out of Palestine into Egypt, and with Israeli forces saying that basically they will not bomb X location between the hours of ten and six, you know, these mini pauses going on, all of this stuff indicates that basically in the background, the lines of communication are still open. There are still tiny deals being struck. And we must persist with calling for a pause or a ceasefire, because that's how diplomacy works, essentially, it will just fail and fail and fail and fail until it succeeds.
0: Meanwhile, I saw that Sky News had written a piece which was saying, what's what's Russia doing when the world is not looking? Obviously, world attention has somewhat shifted away from the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. But what, what is happening there at the moment? And are there things which Russia are doing which should be increasingly causes for concern to us?
1: Something of significance did happen in that Russia managed to fire rockets into a sort of ceremony to uh, say thank you to certain uh, sort of military leaders that had done well. And it's very unfortunate that Ukraine decided to have this in the Zaporizhia region, which is vulnerable to enemy fire. And so Russia was able to basically fire rockets and kill loads of people at that event, honoring the sort of war heroes. Zelensky himself has said the incident should have been avoided. There's a big inquest going on. And so that will be a huge blow internally to morale, I think. And there has been a more general intensification of Russian aggression along the the sort of contested area between the two, I think largely what we are seeing here are the skirmishes before people settle in for the autumn and winter. It's basically been relatively good weather allowing a little extension to what's going on, but largely speaking, there won't be either side really pushing forward either way until the ground completely freezes over in a few months' time because it's very, very dangerous at the moment to make some kind of advance. You basically risk your troops and equipment being mired if if suddenly it starts raining very heavily. And so I think what we're seeing now is this sort of settling in for the winter. On one final note, Trump, he's due to testify in court today,
0: isn't he? What <laughs> what should we expect there? What a final him? note he is.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so so he's uh, taking the stand today, Monday, testifying. Now this is the civil fraud trial. I need to make very clear, the one brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who's basically seeking two hundred and fifty million in damages, and to bar the former president from doing business in that state altogether because the allegation is that they committed repeated fraud in inflating their assets on financial statements in order to get better terms on commercial real estate loans and stuff like that. Yes, there are no criminal charges involved, but the trial has attracted quite a lot of attention because you may remember that the judge has already fined Trump twice for violating a gag order, And, you know, saying negative things about the judge and the judge's staff and the the attorney general. And all of it is seen as a little bit of a test of how Trump will react on the stand, how he behaves under hostile questioning. Trump's teams will be looking to advise him what not to do. And the uh, prosecution teams will be looking for weaknesses to exploit.
0: Alex, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure, Jav. Listeners, don't forget to try our brand new science and technology podcast, Why, where we look at the big questions about time, space, life, the universe, and everything in between. There are free episodes out for launch day, so go to whypodcast.co.uk to find out how the human body has shaped history, why we remember things that didn't happen, and delve into the murky morality of sex robots. There's a brand new episode every Monday and Thursday, so follow the link in the show notes to have your mind blown. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thanks for listening to Start Your Week. Come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker.
1: Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. you get your podcasts.
0: Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis and Alex Andreev. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a
1: Podmasters production.